Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity again to gather and to sing and to just praise your name with song. What a beautiful gift you've given us, our voices, Father, to use for your glory. Lord, I pray we would continue with that same spirit of worship now as we open your word, Father, and just remind us and impress upon us, first of all, this is absolute truth, regardless of what the world may say. This is foundational We should build our lives upon this truth. And Father, just open up the pages of Scripture. Open up the eyes of our heart to hear and to understand and to see. Allow us, Father, just to focus on your truth. Guide us and direct us, Father. And as we pray every Sunday, may we be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we are continuing our study through the book of Acts this morning. The sermon series we've entitled, From Ordinary to Extraordinary. God is doing some great things in the hearts and lives of his people in the first century church, specifically through the Apostle Paul. We've been looking at Paul over the last several weeks, studying his journeys. Paul has already gone on one missionary journey. He's now started his second missionary journey, and great and exciting things are happening in the New Testament church, in the first century church, but the thing we've noticed, and it's very interesting to me, is even in the great times, even as the Lord uses Paul, even as the gospel is presented, lives are being changed, persecution and the enemy and attacks continue to kind of ramp up, and the devil rears his ugly head. It seems like every time something good happens. Paul shares Christ, someone is saved, something good happens in a city, persecution arises. We've seen this time and time again. Last week was no exception. Last week was an interesting sermon for me because we kind of took a different approach. If you weren't here, you can hear it on podcast, but it's the story of Paul being arrested. You may remember he cast the, the demon out of the little girl. The owners didn't like it because they lost their ability to make money off her. So he's lied about. He's taken to trial. He's beaten. He's falsely imprisoned. He's sitting in the jail cell in the middle of this kind of terrible situation for him. And the Bible tells us that he's singing praises to the Lord. Just a reminder of joy in our struggles, joy in our difficult times. And in the midst of him singing, the Bible says that the the Lord sends an earthquake, the the cell doors are broken open, the chains come loose, the jailer believes that all the inmates are going to escape, he's about to kill himself. Paul says, whoa, 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 we're all still here, just relax. It leads the jailer to ask the the question, what must I do to be saved? And we talked about how our struggles and our tragedies oftentimes are about us, but sometimes they're about more than us. Maybe the struggle you're going through is about somebody else in your life that needs to see you living for Christ in the midst of tragedy. This is no different this morning in Acts chapter 17. In fact, we're going to kind of pick up in the middle of the chapter. But before we get to this point, Paul has continued to preach. He's continued to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's continued to be persecuted. And because of his persecution at this point in the context of the story, he's been driven to the city of Athens. So we're going to pick up the account in Acts chapter 17, beginning. Beginning at verse 16. We have it on the screens for you as well. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, now this is Athens, Greece, by the way, just in case you're, you Georgia fans, like I thought I saw him at the bookstore last fall, yeah. No, 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 this is Athens, Greece. While he's waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Very important idea, we'll come back to it in just a minute. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let me give you the first truth and I'll walk back through this together. Truth number one. We must recognize spiritual need all around us and do something about it. We should be in a regular habit of noticing and understanding and seeing that there is great spiritual need all around us and we need to be willing to do something about it. Now, Athens is an interesting city at this time in history. The, the Kind of the rise of the Greeks and the rise of Athens had been several hundred years before the birth of Christ. And so, by the time Paul arrives, Athens is kind of in decline, but it's still a, a cultural city. It's kind of the cultural capital of the world. Some would say the beauty, the architecture, the, the buildings, the temples, all the discussions of the philosophers. It was known around the world. People saw it and visited and enjoyed being there. And it's interesting interesting because when Paul gets there, he's not enamored by the architecture. He's not enamored by all the temples and by the beauty and all the philosophers, all the things that we would probably notice and the things we would take tours of and we would enjoy seeing. Paul sees those things, but he notices something much more important. Look at verse 16 again. Pull that up for me if you would, please. Now, Paul while waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of what? Idols. Right? Paul looks around and he sees the beautiful temples. He sees the statues. He sees all the worshiping taking place. And he recognizes very simply that this city is filled with idols. One scholar said it like this, speaking of Athens. There were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. And it was easier to find a God there than a man. Isn't that interesting? Now we look at these people and we've probably seen pictures of Athens and the temples and the things they did and we think, how terrible of them to be uh, idol worshippers. How terrible of them to be so involved in idolatry. How terrible of them to have things that they worship more importantly and things they worship more than the living God. And it's very easy for us to see that life and to look down upon them until we look at a modern world. Because I promise you, we've got as many or more idols than they ever thought about having. We just don't build the big temples and the statues to prove it. 
I started thinking about idols this week. This is a very interesting passage to me. I've been to Athens and seen the Acropolis and seen the temples and the idols are still very much there. But I started thinking about idol worship in, in our modern culture and I started thinking, you know, if Paul walked around LaGrange or Atlanta or Georgia or any town USA, what would he notice about our idols? What things would he see that we're worshiping? That I thought about the material things of life that we struggle so much with. I thought about the idol of pride, the idol of ego, the idol of self-centeredness. I was reminded of 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Contrasted with Matthew 22 when Christ gives the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So I just thought a lot this week about idols, and I started thinking, you know, I wonder if you could, if you could rank like the modern idols. Like if you could rank, here's the most idols, or here's the biggest idol, or the most important idol in our life. And I started thinking more and more about it. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I, I think if there's one thing that maybe is quickly becoming the biggest idol in our life, it might be this. Now look, just relax. Anybody under the age of 25, just relax. Take a, take a breath. <sighs> Breathe out. I'm not going to ask you to throw your phone away, I promise. We're not going to have a phone burning at the end of the service, I promise. But I, I'm not going to give names or specifics, but in my house on Tuesday night, I'd been studying this and praying through it and thinking about idols. And I came home and made a comment and almost got shoes thrown at me by my family. It was an interesting discussion. <laughs> But I just started thinking about the amount of time we spend on this thing. Right? The, the focus of our attention. Right? You, you, just take the phone out of the, the equation just for a minute. And if you saw anybody standing on the street doing something like this, you would think they were focused, they were involved, and in certain contexts, you might even think they were worshiping. I mean, we take a phone and we do this and it seems normal. I go to a restaurant and look around and everybody's got their phone. I, I did some statistics about phone use, I thought it was very interesting. Here's some very interesting statistics about phones. Americans check their phone on average every 12 minutes, burying their heads in their phone 80 times a day, according to new research. Some people spend four to five hours a day on their phone. Did you know that? The survey found that separation anxiety is real. As a matter of fact, I'm reading 31% feel regular anxiety at any point when separated from their phone. 60% reported experience occasional stress when their phone is off or out of reach. You think that's funny until you leave your phone at home one morning. And you're like, oh. You start canceling things to go back home and get it, don't you? Right, this is the, the most interesting, right? Four in ten Americans, just, you're not going to believe this. Four in ten Americans would rather lose their voice for a day than lose their phone. Could you imagine losing their voice instead of losing their phone? Now, y'all going to laugh at me, but I'm going to take a selfie since I've been talking about this. Come on, y'all get ready. <laughs> What's the matter? I mean, phone use is important in our world, right? And again, I'm not preaching against phones. I'm not preaching against phones. But I'm telling you, if there's anything in your life that's taken away from your worship of the Lord, that's idolatry. 
Like anything, and again, I'm not I, really, and this is funny and we're all in this world, I use mine a lot too, but just think about the, the number of times you open up the Scripture every day and look at it. Think about the number of times you bow your head in prayer every day. Again, I, I just hope to generate some discussion. I hope you go to lunch and kind of have this discussion. Maybe you can text each other across the table about what you ought to do about it. <laughs> But I would say to you, if, there, if there's anything in our world that keeps us from the Lord, that's idolatry. We need to be aware of it. Because I want you to notice what Paul does, right? Paul doesn't walk around Athens and see all the idols and then ignore them. He actually does something about it. So the question is, when we see idolatry in our world, are we led by the Holy Spirit to do something about it? That's kind of the easy, maybe surface level type question. The difficult, harder question is this. When we see idolatry in our own lives, are we led to do something about it? That's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Because sometimes we've got blinders on. Like what are we doing in our lives that put things ahead of Christ? So I want you to notice what Paul does. He gets up and does something about it. Let's look at verse 17. Pull verse 17 up if you would for me, please. So he reasoned, right? Go back to 16. Let's just take in context. Acts 17, 16. So he's in Athens. <clears throat> His spirit's provoked. He sees that the city was full of idols. That's what he sees, verse 17. So his reaction, so, right? Therefore, because of the idols, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now he's eventually going to go to the philosophers. And we'll get there in just a few minutes. But of the three areas that Paul's involved in the synagogues, the marketplace, and the philosophers, he's going to spend time reasoning, discussing, talking with those people about the things of Christ. Now, of those three areas, most of us will never be in a Jewish synagogue with the opportunity to teach. Most of us will never be surrounded by Greek philosophers with an opportunity to teach. But the middle thing there, the marketplace, we're in the marketplace every day, aren't we? At Walmart, the mall, your job, whatever it looks like for you, you have this opportunity every single day to talk to just kind of normal people in the world. What are you doing with your opportunities? What are you doing with your opportunities that the Lord has given you? Because here's what happens with Paul. This is interesting to me. Paul is faithful to preach in the synagogues. He's been doing that. That's what he's been doing. That's normal for him. But he's also faithful to go to kind of the common areas, just the marketplace. Just walk in the areas where everybody else walks and he talks to those people. But because he's faithful in that, he has this opportunity now to speak in front of these philosophers in the Areopagus, which is a very important, famous part of Athens. I've got pictures I want you to see. Pull the first picture up if you would. I just wanted to bring this to context. Right, that's the Acropolis in Athens. It's lifted up, the, the temple of Athena. And, and at that point, that was an important part for these people, an important religious uh, a place they would visit, worship there, visible from the entire city of Athens. But just in front of that, go to the second picture, is the Areopagus. It's just a big rock mound. That's it right there in the, in the foreground. Also called Mars Hill. People would stand on that and preach and they would speak and they would reason. There were courts that were held there. It was a very important place. You can still go there. There's steps that lead up to it. I've stood right there and looked at the Acropolis. There's a plaque that speaks about Paul and what he said there. Very famous location. But because Paul, you can take that down now and go back to that main point. Because Paul was faithful in the marketplace... Because Paul was faithful in the small things, because Paul was faithful to go in the synagogues, God elevated him to this place now to speak to these leaders, to these philosophers about Christ. Let's see what he says. He gets this incredible opportunity in verse 22. Let's see what he says. We have it on the screen. So Paul 
standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, he's just on this rock hill with the Acropolis behind him, men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you're very religious. And I just envisioned Paul standing on this rock, looking back at the temple of Athena up on top of the Acropolis and saying, listen, I know you guys are religious. I mean, there it is. I, I know you're religious in every way, he says. You're very religious. Verse 23, for as I pass along, and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now Paul's just for a second, right? Paul is walking the city. He sees the temples. He sees the statues. He sees the idols. And he recognizes there's this one particular altar that literally says, to the unknown God. So just in case the people of Athens missed a God... Just in case there was another God they needed to appease, they create this altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Verse 24, the God who made, and Paul says, listen, you worship him as unknown, let me tell you who he is. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now we've already seen that Paul notices the idolatry. He does something about the idolatry. Point number two, and this is a significant point for us to understand this morning. Number two, religion does not necessarily equal salvation. Religion does not necessarily equal salvation. Now I want to think through this together, so I want you to look at verse 22 again for me, please. Look at what Paul says in verse 22, right? We're in Athens, filled with idols, filled with temples, filled with all sorts of religious things. Paul says to them, listen, you're very religious. I perceive that in every way you are very religious, but these same people that are very religious have no idea about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But religion does not necessarily equal salvation. So here's the question. Is it possible to be religious and to not understand salvation? Absolutely. I would say that there are people that are very religious. And what we're talking about religious, we're talking about really a false religion here. Right? A false religion where we worship a false god or <clears throat> some sort of a false understanding of who God is. Paul kind of explains this to us in verse 29. I want you to see it again. Paul gives us kind of this clear definition of what false religion looks like. He says, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Right? Paul says, listen, false worship, false gods are made out of gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This is a man-made gospel. 
Now, when we go to India, and some of you have been with us, and some of you will go in the future. When you go to India, you see false idols everywhere, and they're easy to see. Because they have these little shrines on, on every street corner. Some of them are this small, and some of them are the size of the stage, and then there are these massive temples. It's just everywhere you look. And it's interesting because they have all these little spots where they worship, and they'll have a little statue and some candles, and usually they'll put food in there. And it's, it's so bizarre because the cows there are holy and are worshipped and just roam free. And so they fill up these idols, these little idol boxes with food, and then the cows come and eat from the idol boxes. It's this bizarre scene. In that part of the world, it's kind of easy for us to understand, right? We see false idols. We see man-made religion. But I fear in the modern church, and I hope I'm not speaking to you, but I fear in the modern church, pull that first point back up for me, please. I fear that the second point, I fear that so many of us are very religious in what we're doing. Like we show up at church, we say the right things, we act the right way, we put on the right front, but there's no real understanding within our hearts of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's never actually moved us from within. And so we put on this front. I love college football. I use the illustration a bunch just because it's something that resonates with me and I know so many of you enjoy football. And we have an opportunity sometimes to go to games and my, my children, my girls and my wife are Auburn fans and Georgia's, you know, Jonas is the Georgia fan. I've raised my boy right. <laughs> but we get a chance to go to these games sometimes and sometimes we'll have extra Auburn tickets and sometimes I'll go to an Auburn game when they're not playing Georgia. I just love college football. So I've seen Auburn play a bunch of times against other teams other than Georgia. And when I go, I always have a good time. It's a fun atmosphere. College football is fun even if your team's not playing. And you, you, know, you go and you enjoy and the, the spectacle and all the tradition and the fun before and after and the band and the game. And I'm with my family. So I'm there and I'm having a good time. But on the inside, I'm just not feeling it. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Like, I like it, it's fun, and the game's good, and I can enjoy all that, but in the inside, I just, I really just don't care. I mean, I just don't care, I'm just not into it. As opposed to if Georgia were playing, I'd be very much into it. But I go to these games, and I, on the outside, I can still have fun, and I'm not going to be the rude guy that cheers against all of them. I'm not doing that, I'm not, I'm not that guy, I have fun, I can enjoy all the things they do, and their success over there. I, can, I get all that, I can have fun, but in the inside, it's, I'm just not getting it. I'm just not feeling it. I feel like a lot of people in the world in church are like that. You're here, things are good, you're having fun, you're with your family, you can enjoy and appreciate and listen and be involved, but on the inside you're just not getting it. You're just not feeling it. Maybe some of us are struggling with being very religious but not really understanding salvation. See, I think the thing that the American church especially has done is we've made God kind of too small. Paul talks about this man-made idol. We've kind of taken the truth of the gospel of who God really is and we've taken out the things we don't like and we worship kind of a watered-down God who's our buddy and our friend and we can just kind of pal around with but when push comes to shove, we just set him aside and kind of do what we want to do. That's not the teachings of the true and living God in Scripture. That's not who he is. He's the awesome, powerful creator of the universe. And Paul says, listen, you're very religious but clearly, you don't really understand who God is. And so Paul gives us these five things. I want you to see them right in Scripture. And I've got them on the screen as well to help us better understand exactly who the Lord is. Exactly His power. 
exactly His majesty and His glory. And by the way, this is just a simple little outline. If you ever wanted to talk to somebody about who the Lord is and what the Lord does, these verses 24 through about 32, 33, outline it for you. Here's the first thing Paul says. We have them on the screen. God is the God who made the world and everything in it. Verse 24. Right? Not made by human hands. Right? We don't have to think about God living in a temple. Like Paul's looking at the temple and says, listen guys, the, the real God, the unknown God that you're unsure of is not made by human hands. He, he's not living in a temple. In fact, he made everything. He created everything for our enjoyment and for our pleasure. Here's the second thing Paul says, verse 25. We depend on God. He doesn't depend on us. Paul says in verse 25, he gives life to all mankind, right? We don't have to depend on ourselves. We're not able. We depend on the Lord. Why? Because he gives us life. I'm fearful that our, that our culture has come to this place where we're more and more kind of, um, uh, I guess, accepting of what some have called this culture of death in our, in our society. Right? A culture of death, uh, abortion, euthanasia, right? suicide, all those things are so much more accepted and, 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 and so much more normal on, on some levels to society, so much more so than they were ago 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. This whole deal with the kid in, in Great Britain, Alfie, right? the, the whole idea that, that death uh, is kind of normal and life is just not important anymore is just wrong. It's not what the Lord teaches. The Bible says that He's the creator of life. Like He's the giver of all good things. And we're surrounded in a world that just kind of accepts death and, and almost glorifies death. We ought to be the ones that stand up in the marketplace and say, no, 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 God's the God of life. He brings hope and He brings joy into all we do. The third thing Paul shows us in verse 26 is that the Lord rules all things. He's in charge. He's in charge of doing all things. He shows us who He is in His power and His glory. Verse 29, we're created by Him. He's the one that creates. He's the one that decides. He's the one that sets out for us where we're going to go and how we're going to live. He's in control. He reigns over us. And then the last thing, maybe the most important, and Paul is so good about doing this, he kind of explains to them within their culture. He kind of uh, basically defeats some of their arguments by showing who God really is. But then he gets kind of the crux of the argument, verse 30, 31. This is the, the, the bottom line of why Paul is there and what Paul wants to share. The, the, the last thing we see on our list is he will hold us accountable for our actions. Verse 30 and 31. Pull, pull up verse 30 again. Let's read those two together. This is important. Pull up verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... Right, in other words, guys from Athens, philosophers, you were ignorant at one time. God has overlooked that, but now at this point, he commands all people everywhere to repent. You need to repent of your sins, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Men of Athens, you need to repent. Why? Because the Lord has sent Christ to judge us, and there's coming a day when you will receive judgment. You need to repent of your sins and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Notice what happens. In verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Areopagite. 
excuse me, Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with him. Here's the third truth. We've already seen Paul notices the, the altars and the idols. He does something about it. We've already seen that religion doesn't necessarily mean salvation. Truth number three, some will mock and make fun, but some will believe. And we, when we choose to stand up for the gospel and stand up for the truth, some people are going to mock and make fun. Just be ready for it. But others will believe. Now pull that second picture back up one more time for me, Wanda, the one in Athens. I want, I want to just finish with this idea. So like 2,000 years ago, Paul stood right there. The philosophers of Athens stood around him. He made this case. He made this point. He preached the truth of the gospel. He called them to repentance. And the Bible tells us that when they heard about this, they mocked him. Who's this guy? He's a babbler. He's a foreigner. He doesn't know any better. He's foolish. He doesn't understand the philosophies. He doesn't understand the details of what we've been talking about. They laughed. They made fun. They mocked him. 2,000 years later, nobody stands on that rock anymore and talks about Greek philosophy. It's a tourist area. Nobody goes into that temple and worships. It's a museum. Nobody thinks about Stoic philosophy anymore. Nobody thinks about the Epicureans. Nobody's worshiping Greek deities in the Greek philosophy. And yet 2,000 years later, as those men mocked Paul, it's the very words of Paul that I'm standing this morning from this pulpit and preaching as truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They mocked him in their foolishness. Because people all over the world this day, really all over the world from early, early this morning to late, late this night will be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's still true. It was true 2,000 years ago when Paul stood among the philosophers and called them to repentance. It's still true today. There's only one way to salvation through Jesus Christ. So the question for you very simply this morning is how do you respond? Do you mock and laugh and make fun? Or do you believe? God's got extraordinary plans for you. If you'll trust Him and follow Him, you'll see everything He can do for His honor and for His glory in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of the Gospel. We thank You for the account of Paul among these philosophers and in this just incredible place in Athens. Thank You for His faithfulness, for noticing the problems and the idols, Lord, that led Him to preach and share, which led Him to have an audience in front of these philosophers which led him to teach them that religion is not necessarily salvation, Lord, which led him to teach of repentance, which brought some to Christ. Father, that, that whole account and that whole progression is something we ought to be living out in our lives. Help us to notice. Help us to be willing to speak, Lord. Help us to see the difference between false religion and true salvation. And then, Father, I pray, even as some mock us and make fun, I pray that others would believe. Give us the strength and the courage to do the things you've called us to do. And we'll praise your name for everything that you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. The altar is open. It's an opportunity for you to pray. Speak to me. You respond. You come as we sing together this morning. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.